Welcome to the Crosslead Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Silverman. At Crosslead, we exist to help teams and individuals achieve and sustain optimum performance. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Will England. Will is a partner and the chief investment officer of Walleye Capital. As chief investment officer, Will England oversees internal and external strategy allocations and is responsible for risk management. He earned a Bachelor of Science in Operations Research and Financial Engineering from Princeton and a Master's Degree in Mathematics and Computational Finance from Oxford. Throughout his time at Princeton and Oxford, Will England was an accomplished rower, appearing in multiple world championships for the United States national team and winning the Oxford-Cambridge boat race. Today, we talk about lessons Will learned as a world and collegiate champion rower and how he's applied those lessons to life and business. We talk about Walleye Capital's operating model and why decentralization is critical for their success. We talk about the impact of meme stocks and COVID on their investment fundamentals and how they've adapted in the face of change. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Will. All right, Will, thanks so much for making time today. I'd love to introduce you to the audience and uh, maybe just have you talk about your background a little bit if, if you'd be comfortable. Sure, like starting from the beginning. Yeah, um, I'd like to, yeah, take take us back, you know, through your life, sort of where you're from and how you got to the position you're at today. So I like to say I grew up in a town that time forgot. Uh, it's a little town called Marblehead, uh, Massachusetts, north of Boston, and it was the tenth largest uh, town in the first census in 1790. And I don't think it's changed very much since then. <laughs> it's kind of one of those places yeah. where if you don't wear boat shoes, you're kind of shunned. Um, <laughs> so, like, not in the normal world <laughs> at all. But yeah, that's where I started, and I I sort of break my life down into four stages and not all of which are necessarily obviously connected, but there is a sort of a logic to it um, and a flow in hindsight. Um, so as I said, I, I grew up in this little town where it's very sheltered upbringing. I wasn't like flying around on jets, but you know, I had pretty much an idealistic way to grow up, frankly. And sort of the first part of my life, which I'd say up until um, the end of eighth grade, I uh, I wouldn't describe myself similar to as it was now. <laughs> Frankly, I uh, I didn't work very hard. I was fairly lazy, a little bit fat. I had a lot of raw talent, uh, realistically, uh, both in regards to uh, academics and athletics, uh, but just really didn't ever have to work that hard because of uh, you know my sort of situation, <laughs> and that sort of seemed fine. And and something happened in, in eighth grade. It wasn't like this; no one died. It wasn't anything terrible like that. But but for me, very formative time in my life. So in that in my world, in that frankly part of the part of the country, um, and how I grew up, um, everyone you know goes to uh, or not everyone, but a lot of people will go to. Uh, boarding school. Um, and that's sort of what my whole family had done. My sister, you know, it's very much like applying to college. These are very difficult schools to get into and you just sort of apply. And you know, that's just sort of what I, what I assume would happen. And what happened to me in the eighth grade is because I, I never really worked hard and, and frankly, wasn't that special. I, I actually didn't like, that was the first time when I didn't achieve a goal that I had. And it was really embarrassing <laughs> and uh, it, it sucked. And in, in hindsight, it's like, okay, that's not like the end of the world. Um, but for me, being in eighth grade, it was just sort of terrible. And so something in me kind of really snapped, and, and I never wanted to feel that way again. And that was really when I said, okay, I, I'm never going to not be absolutely dedicated to what I'm trying to achieve. 
uh, as you know, a 14 year old kid. And so the rest of that year, the next year, you know, I got basically an A or an A plus in every single class I ever took. I started to, you know, work out and, and learn about fitness and started to develop some of the core traits that still define me today. And, and everything sort of worked out. And the next year I applied and got into exactly where I want, wanted to go. And um, so you end up going there as a, as a sophomore instead of as a freshman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and again, it's sort of <laughs> every, everything is all real. So I went, so went to Andover, which is a you know very, very old um, elite school. school. Yeah. Um, but really interesting, too, because it, it is very difficult to get into. And um, while there are exceptions to this, um, generally speaking, the, it's really just surrounded by very smart people um, and pushed very, very, very hard. And then actually Andover from an academic sense, it was much more challenging than where I went to college or grad school. But yeah, I went there as a sophomore and sort of with a little bit of chip on my shoulder because I hadn't gotten in the previous year and it's not typical for someone to go in as a sophomore. And I was just like, you know, that that next phase of my life, I'd say, was, you know, when I went from sophomore year in high school to all the way through the end of grad school, where I started transition from what was in my growing up had been this sort of lazy, not cool, like I said, a little bit <laughs> fat kid to, you know, like this... I was very successful in rowing. I did super well in school. It's kind of this combination of like a, you know, a jock and a super nerd um, and was just really successful in all sorts of various different things. Um, probably to my detriment at certain points, because I was probably a bit of a dick after, um, <laughs> after some things. Um, but that was what, sort of a very formative time in my life. I, I did start rowing in high school. I, I what drew you to rowing? What brought you to rowing? <laughs> uh, just like to so, suffer. Yeah, no. <laughs> Actually, I resisted doing it for a while because um, my, my sister uh, rode as well. She's a couple years older than me. We're, we're very competitive uh, with each other, um, among other things. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this stupid fucking sport. Um, you just sit in a boat. <laughs> it's, it's really dumb. Uh, yeah. And then finally, I was like, well, you might actually be really good at it. So why don't you just sit down? So I actually didn't start until my junior year in high school, which is you know relatively late for any sport because I was you know 16 years old by then. Yeah. And uh, there's this thing called the ERG, which is like this stationary torture device where, where you sit down and you just pull on something until you pass out. I mean, that's it basically if you're super good at that with a little bit of coaching over the years, like you're just going to be really good at rowing. Um, and then as you get higher and higher, like <laughs> genetics matter and all sorts of things like that. But rowing is this amazing sport because probably more so than any other sport that I can think of, how well you do is like directly correlated to what you put into it. You know, maybe weightlifting is like that to some extent, yeah. but, but very much correlated. So I just fell in love with it immediately. And I went from <laughs> never having tried the sport to three, four months later, had the best third sports on the team and, you know, wow. made, made the top boat and, and really just kind of got obsessed. So, uh, na- I, I don't know, I, I had a natural affinity for, for rowing. Um, I still wasn't that good because it does take a, a little bit of time to, to be very, you know, competitive on a, on a broad level. Uh, but, but when I got to college, especially my my freshman year, um, the the summer before my freshman year, I uh, I spent some time really thinking about how to how to train on my own, which is a huge part of being su- successful in that sort of a sport. Is that you know a, a lot of people can sit down and if a coach is yelling at you and saying you know just pulling the fucking handle as hard as you can, they'll they'll do that. But actually being right. able to do it by yourself. Um, and be intelligent about how to design your own training program. That's, uh, you know, at some point what really separates people from. Oh, the, interesting. The, yeah. It's very thoughtful. Good. Yeah. So I, I, I spent some time doing that before I went to college and then, mm-hmm. you know, my, my, my freshman year, uh, got a lot better, you know, and that, that wasn't just, oh, I'm better than the guys, uh, 
mostly guys around me on my team, but sort of, you know, very competitive on a, on a national, uh, on a national level. level. You've gotten a lot better. Yeah. 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 So, you know, again, just very good for <laughs> learning about work ethic and, I mean, there's all I could talk for, for a long time about rowing. I, I torture the people at work now about all my stories from rowing, but it, it's certainly <laughs> not the only thing that provides salient lessons for life. But you know, very sort of obvious and you know, and transferable images from from rowing that apply to a lot of what we do. So, so anyway, so I, it, it does go back to what I was saying before, as far as figuring out just the benefits, frankly, of of ex, I would say extreme discipline, but being as disciplined as possible. Um, that's definitely true in academics. It's definitely true in rowing. So I was fortunate to be able to find and then have the opportunity to, to really focus on on those activities um, and, and was successful doing that. And I had a great time just really identifying and, and sort of both of those domains. So when I was, and it was somewhat extreme when I say I was like the super nerdy jock rower, like in, uh, in college, I uh, you know was an engineering major, it was a particular major to where I went, like sort of combining, you know, engineering, mathematics, economics but you know pretty pretty intense academically a uh, very different group of people than those that i was sort of spending their time on the river with and then when i went to to grad school um i went to, to oxford for grad school originally to do a phd in math which is like really weird for someone that likes sports but very interesting to me at the same time i one of the, all the reasons why i also went there was to run this thing called the oxford cambridge boat race uh, which is a uh, one of the oldest collegiate yeah, legendary race right in the world yeah and uh, you know it attracts people that like me had rode for their national teams and been to the Olympics and world championships and all that. So it's a very, very elite level, uh, which is just amazing experience. Unfortunately, worked out well. So, you know, through that, basically, uh, so you represented Oxford in that, in that match. Yep. I was, uh, uh, I, I rode for Oxford. Um, I was the stroke of, of, of Oxford promote, um, and we were we won by a lot, <laughs> which by was lot. Uh, just <laughs> which, which was an amazing experience in, in all sorts of ways. I mean, maybe I'll come back to that in a second, but but that's sort of how to define that that chapter of my life. And then after grad school, and when I said I'm going to stop rowing at that point, I'd I'd done everything except go to the Olympics. I didn't want to just row. Um, and sort of time lies, and as far as when I was in the Olympic cycle, it wasn't very conducive. Yeah. We basically had to spend four years just doing that, which is not, um, it was just didn't, it was, wasn't something I wanted to do. So I went out into the real world um, and got my ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's sort of, you know, what I'd say is the third sort of wilderness phase of my life, frankly. I don't know how to explain to, you know, people in their early 20s when they're finishing college or grad school or whatever it is, when they're coming out of the cocoon, if you know what I mean, they're like, yeah. your 20s fucking suck. <laughs> like, you're at the bottom again. You really don't know shit. No matter how smart you are, like, you just don't have the experience and the judgment. And there's all sorts of examples of this um, sort of in the business world, I assume from, from your background, where basically you do just need to be humbled. I certainly did. It was uh, it's very, you know, useful in hindsight. And, and so the story there is, you know, I worked for a big firm in, in finance, um, you know, my backgrounds sort of as a mathematician academically. Um, so I worked for, you know, big quant hedge fund, which is interesting intellectually, um, but frankly, pretty fucking boring. Uh, and then I also worked in, in private equity venture capital for, for a period of time just to get some sort of broad experience. And, uh, you know, that was super interesting, but I was like, oh my God, I'm, <laughs> I'm 
have a lot to learn, basically. Uh, and then also in then those periods, you know, there there was sort of the process of sort of iterating towards my current my current life, and as far as um, you know, figuring out exactly what I wanted to do in my career, figuring out what I thought that I was. I wouldn't necessarily say uniquely qualified to do, but so where, where some of my relative strengths lie, which is super important. And then just sort of other aspects of life, like meeting my wife, you know, figuring out where, where you're going to live. You know, for me, that was effectively in my, my lit, mid to late twenties as sort of the, what I, what I sort of define as the third phase of my life. And then the fourth is where, you know, I am now. Um, I'm only 36, so not, not super old by, by any means. Um, although my, uh, my parents and my wife basically say that I've been like a, a 50 year old trapped in a younger man's body for <laughs> many, many years. For I'm super boring. <laughs> you know, and so now, you know, I'm various different labels that I think are appropriate, you know, whether it's husband, father, I have two kids, um, two little boys that, you know, the most important things in my life, you know, but also leading, leading a company, uh, an investment company too, you know, which is slightly different than leading a quote unquote normal company. So, you know, you know, investor and, and we're, we're very much in, in sort of what we do at sort of the, the center of the hedge fund world and, and by design, we sort of, even our business itself has a hub and spoke model. So I'm at the, at the center of that. So, so those are kind of where I am now and all the experiences that I had before that have sort of, sort of coalesced into all the things that, that make me, me. So, so I, I want to go back to, to, to one point on the, um, the humbling experience. Cause I think that's interesting and relevant. And then, and then, Spend a little time, if you would, talking about like what is Walleye Capital. You know, you know well, how are you different than than other hedge funds? I'd be curious about. But before that, if you think about in your twenties, you're you're coming out. You've been uber successful at this point. You know, I mean, you've gone to Andover and Princeton and now Oxford, and you're you're rowing at the national level, competing. You know, at world championships, and you know, and now you, you come into business. When you say it kicked your ass, go back at that and spend a little more time on that, if you would. Like, what specifically was like the the eye opening sure. experience for you? Well. It's a couple of points. Number one, no one gives a shit. And I think yeah. that's really important that's for great. people to... It opens the door, right? It gets you in the be, door. To be realistic, like, yes, like absolutely those experiences were helpful. And and yes, I was sort of surrounded in a very, very privileged way, which I didn't necessarily appear at the time. Uh, you know, not necessarily like, oh, saying I have this brand association of, of being at those places, which is really what they are in a lot of ways. But, you know, also yeah. just having a network, being exposed to people. Some of the most important people in my life were those that, that I met through through those experiences. But then you get out in the real world, and you know, you start to say, okay, instead of people giving me credit for my potential abilities, they're going to start to evaluate me on what I could do right now. Um, so right. it's the difference between kinetic and potential energy. And also, in a way in which you don't necessarily think of, because if you're in an academic environment, you've got teachers, you've got parents, which are very much your cheerleaders, and they're rooting for you to do well, literally, in some cases. Yeah, literally, um, yeah. And then you get out of the real world and people are like, I fucking hate you, dude. You think you're this like privileged asshole that, you know, went to all these good schools. <laughs> like in a way, subconsciously, they're actually rooting for you to fail. So if you aren't super good, if you aren't super competent, in some ways you get less leeway. That's not to say it's like this is negative by any means, but just actually being totally realistic. And, and that's sort of a big part of who I am now is just like being real and objective and really evaluating things for what they are and not telling yourself a story is, is a big part of that. And, and so what I found, it's like, okay, it, it's not about what have you done in your past? It's about what can you do now? What can you do well for the environment? Yeah, sure. The fact that you might've been super successful in an athletic endeavor does speak to broad characteristics about discipline and work ethic and all that sort of stuff, but you still need to translate it into another area in which you can actually be helpful. You know, I had lots of people with gold medals that, 
frankly, are pretty fucking useless the rest of their life because that was it. Um, And so just actually having a bit of an experience of doing that, you know, not fun, not sort of painful, but like, like anything, like greatest enlightenment comes after peak suffering. And that's true in sports and and lots of other areas. And I I think that's, uh, you know, it's very much sort of true, true in life. So, so did you have a mentor when you got there or or did you just found it was really like, you know, doggy dog? So I had, I do have a mentor. He's actually my son's godfather now, um, who, you know, I, he was also, you know, a rower 20 years older than me. Um, who's basically like my big brother and has sort of been a, a guiding voice of influence of, you know, basically saying all these things, which I didn't even believe at the time. It's like, okay, like you kind of need to go and get your ass kicked for a couple of years and then you'll, you'll start to figure out some stuff. And I remember hearing that and not believing that, but yeah, just having someone to sort of, you know, um, provide perspective along the way has been super helpful for me. And then over the years I've had, you know, other, other mentors, um, even in my current business, you know, where there's a, uh, you know, our, our, our senior partner is, is much older than I am, you know, very much has aspects of, you know, wisdom, which, which are helpful. And, and I do think that's really important. I mean, one of the things that I've um, certainly found over the years going through various different phases of a business thus far is the world's really hard to figure out on your own. <laughs> um, having partners or other people that you can talk to is, is really helpful, even if you are, you know, individually very impressive, very much more want to do you know, have, have partners along, along for the ride um, to be able to complement each other as opposed to doing it your own. So that's probably a good transition to, to walleye. Maybe, maybe spend some time talking about like what, what is walleye capital? How are you different? And then what I'd love you to do is then tie those two themes together, which is, you know, sure. you guys are in a high growth environment now. You're, you're bringing on board. How do you think about taking some of that, that young potential uh, talent and turning it into kinetic value yeah. creation for you guys? Yeah, yeah. sure. So, you know, I, I like to say a dreadful, like we're, we're a hedge fund, right? So people have a lot of connotations around what that might mean. Like, oh, you guys are evil. I mean, first of all, I'd say we're, we're trying to be the non-evil hedge fund. I don't necessarily think those, those are the <laughs> concepts are synonymous, but it's just structurally. Um, there's only about 10 hedge funds in the world that are structured the way we are for sort of various different reasons. Um, you know, one is just that in order to have our structure, you need a lot of, you need to be extremely competent and have a lot of trust from your investor group because of, you know, effectively how, how costs get sort of shared across the group. But our, our model is a distributed network. It's not like we focus on one particular area. It's, it's not like we're saying, oh, we're really great at, you know, picking tech stocks long and short or, or biotechs or something like that. Um, we have all these different strategy pods. There's actually about 100 in, in almost anything that you can do in public and, and and in some cases, private markets. So we'll have people that are, you know, focusing on it's called Longford equity and in, in various different sectors all over the world. We'll have people doing quantitative strategies. We'll have you know, people doing, you know, various different forms of, of option strategies, um, you know, focused on trading all these weird dimensions related to vol and, and sort of higher higher order characteristics and, and various different types of funding trades. As I said, there's about a hundred different across the group. And and stitching them all together is is extremely complex, um, but if done well can you know, can work extremely well. And, and there's, as I said, there's only about 10 hedge funds in the world that are structured like this, and they're the, they're the most successful hedge funds out there. So my role is is basically sitting at the center of all that um, and figuring out how to tie it together and um, have you know, been, a, been a driving force, not the only driving force, but a driving force in sort of constructing that hub and spoke model over the past couple of years, given given sort of the history of, of, of our firm. And so the way, you know, as, as I said, it's, it's a distributed network. We have... We're, we're not trying to sit at the center and control what everyone is is doing. <laughs> we hire very competent people, and then uh, they, they largely run their own businesses and are given the freedom to, to do that. 
Um, but at the same time, like that center group as well needs to needs to you know think about stitching everything everything together to to make it work better. And this is, you asked about the analogies from from rowing to how our business works. I mean, I mean, there's <laughs> there's a ton. I think the most most salient one from from rowing is it sort of regards to creating a a team and sort of stitching various you know complementary you know people and and talents together. It's like just the process of making a boat in and of itself. So, you know, the way rowing works on every team that you've been on, there's, there's a selection process where like you're literally sitting down and you, <laughs> you have to be better than the next guy, even though he's going to be on your team um, is sort of very competitive in, in a productive way. And the thing that's so great about rowing, it's not the only sport like this, but there's no like storytelling, right? Like, in some other sports, someone can say like, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm super good soccer player, or basketball, or in football, like I'm I'm the best ever." In rowing, it's just like, "Okay, sit down, pull the fucking score. Like, it's either going to be better or not." Or you know, get in a seat race. Like, and then the seat race is literally pull two boats together. You switch two guys, and you see if it went faster than in the previous race. And this is very objective. Um, so there's a whole process in rowing about like just making the boat and, and by that, you know, in order to sort of be on the boat, especially as you go to higher levels, there's just this, uh, this baseline level of competency involved and sort of this sort of shared, shared desire and acceptance that, yeah, we've all been through suffering again, not, not the only area in the world to which this applies, but, but rowing is certainly one of them where, you know, in order to, you know, be, be at the highest levels. You know, each person individually has to be very good. At the same time, like, I mean, there's a reason why people use the analogy of like making the boat real faster. Like, you literally have to do that. You have you know various different people that that sit in the boat, and you can't just be doing your own your own thing. And and especially if you really want to optimize, um, it, you know, it's it's about getting on the same page and various different levels, and also respecting that it's not just that everyone is the same. You, you can't just take a bunch of guys that are six ten and big dumb animals that are ridiculously strong, but maybe don't have a good feel for, you know, rhythm or things like that and, and put them in a boat and expect that that's going to do as well. You know, you, the stroke, you know, as I mentioned, that was sort of my seat has a slightly different role than the people in the middle of the boat have a slightly different role than people to, you know, at the, at the bow of the boat. So just actually saying, okay, there's a baseline level of competency to get into that type of organization. But then at the same time, once you're there, there's no like additional selection. So then you really got to, go back and be on the same page to, to make it go faster. You know, there are, they're very much analogs to, to that in our business. Um, not necessarily perfect analogs, but sort of the concept of, you know, our business model, you know, we're hiring senior people. We're not really a training organization. We're, we're giving them a lot of trust. We start with an opening bit of trust. You know, I didn't make up that quote, but I think it's a great quote where, you know, we, yeah, we, we trust that people are, it's, that's from Jim Collins, by the way. So don't even yeah. give it to me. Um, <laughs> but uh you know, just say you're you're going to run your business here and doing your own thing. Um, but at the same time, there is this, this notion of why we've been successful and growing in in our world in recent years is we're not going out and saying that the organization is is evil, right? You know, we're I think we're respected at the center for for applying common sense to situations. Um, not necessarily saying that in order to be successful in the fi- in the finance line industry, you need to be an automaton that you know is is not respectful of people and developing people and sort of all the aspects that go into, uh, you know, being, you know, having individuals that are very good at what they do and, and, and not treating them like training cards um, as well, which in our case and in some other businesses, uh, one of the things that called the operators really don't like is that for reasons that are outside of their control, all of a sudden there can be kind of arbitrary decisions about, you know, for whatever reason, they, they no longer have a job. So that those are just some concepts that, that I apply that they do very much go back to, kind of the, the, the rowing ideas. And I think, the, the, again, the most salient one is there's 
baseline level of selection. And then, you know, once you're there is, is figuring out how to, we're all on the same team now. Let's just go really fucking fast. Yeah. Super, super interesting. If you go to, let's, let's pivot some, some, some yourself and like your own like leadership thoughts, if we could, if you, sure. um, if you think about like maybe some of these critical lessons that you've learned that shaped, you know, the current phase of your life you're in, I mean, you sort of alluded to some of this, you know, based on some of the rowing analogies, but I'd be interested if there's, if there's something you think that's like really topical, top of mind for you, maybe there's something you've read or something you've been thinking about, you know, as you, as, as you, as you're leading as a chief investment officer for walleye. I guess so. One of the things that I've become more cognizant of, and this is not by design, is that to the extent I have a superpower, um, it's that I'm extremely disciplined um, without like trying to be disciplined. It just sort of seems natural to me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can get into my daily routine if you want, but like I eat the same thing every day. I'm very structured in what I do, big believer in routines. You know, physically, I'm somewhat imposing. I can lift lots of crazy heavy weights, and that's just what's interesting to me. Have lots of broad interests, devour books. I mean, these are just things that that I do. And what I've learned over time is like that's not necessarily normal. And and there is going back to rowing this this sort of <laughs> idea of like to be super successful in anything, you you have to trick yourself that that's possible. Um, like saying you're going to be really good at a sport is statistically irrational. Saying that you're going to be very successful in business is statistically irrational or they're going to have lots of money. It's just like, if you just run the numbers and, and I'm saying this as a data person, like you say, no, I'm not, I'm going to conclude that's, that's just nonsense. I, I'm not, um, yeah. And so what I remember from, from rowing and what I'm saying was helpful. And I think there's very much from a leadership perspective in business is just almost saying like, guys, yeah, we're going to do this. You know, we're going to train. And then in the analog of business, it's we're going to think about strategy. We're going to think about how strategy relates to tactics. And we're going to, you know, think over the con in, in the context of, you know, not just days or weeks, but, but months and sometimes years to actually achieve what we, what we want. And just having an under, underlying level of like belief that you can do that and an enthusiasm and an optimism for that is, uh, is very helpful. And so I guess one of the things that I've just been thinking about recently, partly because, as I said, I devour books and podcasts and hear lots of people talking about this. It's like, oh yeah, that's just something I would do. It's just the concept of, of optimism. Mm. I'm not like going out and saying, I'm going to be inspiring today, but just sort of a belief of, yeah, like I, I think we're going to achieve X, Y, and Z. And I'm optimistic about that, but it's realistic because effectively, you know, you put in the training. I mean, when you show up on the starting line in rowing, mm. and I imagine that there's probably lots of analogs like this for you. It's like, if you know that you've put in years and years of, of practice to get there, like you just it, there's like this calmness. It's like yeah, I'm just I'm gonna win. Um, yeah, the match takes care of itself. It's okay. It's yeah, already been decided. And, and I think that there's absolutely an analog for that in our world, especially in investing. It's like there's a lot of a lot of things that we can't control in our world. There's there is short term luck involved, but if you have a good process across all the various different areas of your business, and you've put you know been very diligent about putting that in place over the years, and the the, the first principles themselves make make sense and you believe in what you're doing and can inspire other people to, you know, follow what you're doing and, and why, like it's going to work. And just, you know, all those lessons together about, um, you know, being dedicated and, and being confident because of, you know, you know that you put the work in and for us, that's been very helpful. And, and we, you know, a few years ago, five, six years ago, if you looked at where we were relative to where we are today, I don't, I don't think would have been, been a stretch to a lot of people to predict that, but, you know, here we we we're, we very much thought that was that was possible. So, to, I don't know if that. Uh, no, that's super. It's super interesting. 
I mean, what make what I, what I think about, you know, because you're right, the parallel for me, like with with, with combat experience, is pretty similar, right? In the in the, yeah. in the SEAL teams, you you hammer the fundamentals uh, over and over and over again. So when you get on the objective, you've got a lot of confidence that, regardless of how the objective unfolds, you know, the basics of shoot, move, and communicate, you know, you're going to be better than your adversary, and that that wins the day. The, 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 the second thing is if you're assuming you're operating in chaotic or, or, or complex, you know, conditions where th- there are a lot of variables that are moving and are changing, the fact that the fundamentals are in place lowers that overall cognitive load and allows you sort of space and time to sort of assess the other opportunities or threats and, and then, and then, and be, and be adaptive, which to me was always the differentiator in a, in a, in a combat environment. Cause really what equates to speed, right? If you're faster than your adversary, it becomes, I'd be curious, like, what is that parallel for you guys when you think about, like, so what part of the process is like, hey, make sure your your, your fundamentals are sound, and then, and then as you know, various factors or or conditions are changing rapidly, how do you sort of yeah, drill sure. that into your team? Yeah, it's, it's very much a direct parallel. Um, you know, our our business model is sort of predicated on the concept of dynamism, being able to sort of pivot literally our exposures um, to to areas that we think are are going to be more profitable or, or interesting. We're really responding to the world. It's like a, a homogenous block in a positive sense. <laughs> and so, you know, the fundamentals that we have in place are, you know, do we have just somewhat specific to our world, you know, do we have, you know, infrastructure that's appropriate to be able to do that from a technology standpoint, from an operational standpoint? Do we have risk management systems in place? Do we have the right decision-making process? You know, we certainly spent time um, over the years actually moving away from anything that resembles management by committee because it's just like slow <laughs> and it doesn't add a lot of value and it's sort of a a cover your ass thing. So, uh, you know, the reason I, I'm, I'm biased, but I, but I love our business model. And I do think that, as I said, the, the most successful um, groups in our world are structured is in this platform concept is have the fundamentals in place, literally have the platform in place, and then being able to respond and pivot as like, I don't know, the analog to like guys are shooting at you. Like you need to turn the fucking cannons because now guys are shooting at you from the right instead of the left. Um, but you still need <laughs> to have that like, you know, yeah. grounded on the platform. Um, that's very much the way we operate. So there are things that we do that we're doing now that six months ago, I just, I wouldn't have thought of, but iteratively throughout our process of, you know, identifying opportunities and it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's go and do that. And we don't have to like retrain or repivot all these various different highly specialized people because there's a, there's a generalist aspect um, to be able to, to go in that category. And so I, I do, that's why I'm sort of very bullish on, our type of approach. And again, this isn't something we invented. And um, in general, I think our industry is sort of moving more towards towards this concept of, you know, having a fewer number of firms that are more generalist in nature that can respond and pivot as, as opportunity sees itself in sort of very structurally advantage, advantageous ways. I know Walleye's been, you, you guys have been thinking a lot about culture recently and about values and principles. And, and I know, I'd be, I'd be curious, you know, if you'd be willing to share some of your, your, your more recent thoughts about how you how you deliberately set a culture for your firm? We've uh, just in terms of headcount, we've kind of crossed that tribal number that historically just empirically <laughs> pops up as like you know past a certain point, people units divide into into subunits. So you know we're we're now about 170 people, not not huge by any means relative to the scope of organizations, but 170 you know very high right. performing people, uh, and because we're geographically distributed. And give a sense, Will, if you would. Two, two years ago, how big were you? About 100. About 100. So you almost yeah. doubled in, 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 in two years, and during a pandemic, no less. Yeah, so there's a lot of people we've hired that I've never met in person, which still feels, feels weird to me. So what we've been thinking about is like, 
what, what the so our firm's been around since 2005 and one of the sort of defining that, w- that was literally talked about when we started is like let, we're not going to hire high maintenance people <laughs> well trust me there's a lot of high maintenance people in finance and uh it's just not the view is it's just not worth hiring someone even if you know they might be able to make you a lot of money or be high performance if they're if they're high maintenance and obviously that's somewhat subjective because high maintenance means different things to different people but you kind of know when you see it so so that was a defining characteristic but as we as we've grown we've just noticed that it's sort of become harder for people to understand like okay what are <laughs> what are these guys about you know who, who are these walleye people it's like this not small hedge fund that's based in Minnesota, like who the hell is based in Minnesota, all those sort of aspects. So we actually recently took the time to write down some phrases that resonate with us uh, and and intentionally did it in a way it's like literally the first thing says is we hate HR documents. Unfortunately, this sounds like an HR document, but please give us some some, some momentary forgiveness, (laughs) all of which is is very true. So I... Even what we talked about, it'd be remiss if I didn't have at least one thing in there about that involves rowing. So, you know, one of them is like row in unison. It's just kind of an obvious thing, like being in sync with your teammates if you want the boat to fly. But but the first thing in our value statement is I, I asterisk out certain parts of this, but it's it's be fucking real. And it's, you know, don't attempt to fit a preconceived notion of what someone says you should be. Yeah, this one is really important. You know, that's our first statement. And I do think in finance, and so it's just the world in general. Like just being objective about seeing things for what they are and stop trying to put on a costume or tell a story. Again, just like in rowing, you sit down in an erg, the number doesn't lie. You win the race or you lose the race, that doesn't lie. In finance, at the end of the day, you make or lose money. And so, you know, fortunately, we're, we're in an industry where there is sort of um, an objective measuring stick. And uh, what we've seen, what I've seen, and, and you know, some of the other my other partners here have seen it's just you know people the better that someone is at doing that um they sort of the, the more successful there there will be you know other things that you know just are important to us sort of around though like don't don't have high maintenance people you know be real you know work together you know being able to at times go very very fast uh, but at times also just just have patience or sort of that that balance i think i think is important you talk a lot about the speed of iteration today um, which is which is super important, but you can't just be running around like anxious all the time and, and changing shit for for no reason. So kind of finding right. that balance between the two, you know, other things that are sort of relevant or just sort of talking about general concepts of just being humble, like remembering some. No matter what you do, there's always someone better, whatever whatever better <laughs> might mean. And then, you know, also being able to to take responsibility, step up to the plate when you need to. You know, things that are sort of super important to us. There, and you know, the last one that we sort of ended on. You know, this is a little bit more particular to to our business and how we're structured, but basically just longevity in our community, in the investment community, you know, no matter, I think, what you're doing, whether you're investing in, you know, sort of the hedge fund world, to call more, you know, public markets or private markets or, or venture capital is, is, is just the notion of consistency. And that's somewhat of a mental thing where, you know, the people that are taking huge swings um, and betting the farm aren't, aren't really the ones that last. So, we do just like to sort of remind people that, and there's sort of macroscopic areas of sort of how that can manifest itself as, as well as microscopic areas too, just sort of the notion of, of long-term thinking. Again, these are just concepts that resonate with us that I do think they transcend characteristics of individual people. Like we don't want 
everyone that's a that's a copy of what what someone else is doing actually by by design we, we very much want um sort of different sorts of skill sets but but these are pretty uniform across you know when we intuitively have been screening people to to join walleye and fit into quote unquote the walleye way over the years um these are just some some threads that have come up so we're, we're very much thinking about how to inculcate that um, into our environment because because yes we want to continue growing to the extent which we could do so in an intellectually honest fashion we want people to sort of understand what really matters to the you know the the leaders of the firm even if they're not interacting with us as much on a day-to-day basis um just as we've grown out of necessity that, that's that's harder and harder to do and thinking about how to do that thoughtfully and in a genuine way like just blasting out an email and saying hey these are our values you should read them and then it'll be great like that's not going to work yeah so you know that's that's certainly one one area for call it cultural development that I think is it, it's super important. I, I, in general, <laughs> um, again, broad broad statements, but financial businesses, investing businesses, uh, obviously need to very much focus on investing. Um, you know how they effectively generate revenue um, for their for their investors and, and for the firm. As far as how those businesses actually operate as businesses, you know how they do things like even think about culture in some ways can be secondary, um, whereas in other sort of industries, those are sort of the most important aspects. So um, we very much are uh, trying to be more deliberate about thinking about both simultaneously. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. You guys have always struck me as different. I mean, the fact, just the fact that you're in Minnesota and, and, and your sort of approach to the type of people you hire just it, it does seem a bit unique compared to what I've seen in the more traditional like financial hubs and, and, and firms and approaches. So, you know, it's pretty remarkable. And I think that sort of speaks in your guys' retention and, and, uh, and your growth over the years, which has been remarkable. As you think about, you know, like the, the last year of COVID, I'd be curious to see like what if, uh, what has been, you know, Walleye's Capital's approach to the pandemic, both from just a human capital management standpoint, and then also like anything you've seen from a, you know, fundamentals of, of your investing strategy? I mean, I think in general, <laughs> in like society, I mean, there are actually a lot of benefits from COVID, not the experience in and of itself, because it was, you know, terrible in all sorts of various different ways. But but arguably, there could be this sort of long run uh, benefit of people asking, like, why? Why do we do things this way? Like, why do I sit in a car for two hours a day to commute into an office every day? Um, as well as sort of other types of analogs there. And just the concept of why, like, from a systems perspective, like a really high-level systems perspective, I think a lot more people are thinking now, like, how are we structured? How are we structured politically, you know, on a national level, on an international level? Those types of conversations probably just didn't occur to people. Our, in our world, more of the microscope level in terms of, our, you know, our business, because of this idea that we are a distributed network, that we have a lot of people kind of doing their own things already and, frankly, are geographically dispersed. I mean, we're headquartered in Minnesota, which it turns out is not the head center of the hedge fund world um, and always have had... <laughs> <laughs> offices all over the place, um, literally in pods, um, it really wasn't that um, disruptive to us. So what we did and what we still do is we say, and, th- and this works because of the sort of that concept of like, we have super competent people that have already pre-qualified themselves to get into our boat, quote unquote, that we said, you guys are adults, just figure out what you want to do. When you want to come to the office, the office is open. If you don't want to come to the office, we'll ship you a computer and like 20 monitors to your house. Just, you're an adult, let us know. And we trust that you're sensible in that. And we obviously can monitor for productivity in, in an R-roll too, especially when you have people that are you know, generating revenue. You can say like, okay, like how is that impacting what, from what you've done historically? Yeah, uh, you've got your speaking, machine. 
Right. That that works for us because just we're we, we're a business comprised of largely senior people. We're we're not an apprenticeship organization. So I can understand why you know other other types of businesses, you know, banks probably are the most salient example that. You know, they're training huge portions of their workforce, and that's very difficult to do remotely. Like, let's just, you can't do that. <laughs> so, you know, I guess where, where I feel that for us is it hasn't really had an impact um, overall, all things being equal. I just personally like seeing people in person. I think that's helpful. I think that humans, you know, very much evolved to communicate in person and, and get more out of an in-person meeting than, um, than don't. And so our offices across the country are sort of full to varying degrees. Um, some very full, some not full at all, but, but certainly I very much still enjoy seeing people, people in person. So I, I kind of end up as like, I think complete work at home almost for any organization, unless that was very intentional um, from the start. I think that's just idiotic. Um, I don't think culture can be maintained long-term, let alone developed through, through Zoom. It, it, just doesn't make sense to me. At the same time, again, just t- saying to someone, you like, I, I used to live in Boston. Sitting in traffic in Boston is like way worse than walking barefoot on glass um, at, <laughs> at times. And so, like doing that every day, does that make sense? I I don't know. So, I, I think more more companies just going back to what are saying is like, let's just evaluate some of the why and ask some of these questions. And I think we're all just figuring out. What, what that looks like moving forward, which is, which is very healthy. I mean, it's sort of going back to something we talked about as far as, you know, being dynamic and, and doing things that, that overall make sense and perhaps some of the artificial restraints that frankly existed because of industrial area society that was sort of developed long before some of the modern sort of technological aids that we have um, came into being. So, Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that. I think, if, and you're right, I think the pandemic has been, you know, almost, almost a, a forcing function for those types of questions, which usually leads to like significant leaps in, in creativity, innovation, which is great. You, you've seen a, a, probably a number of cycles in your in your professional career at this point. You know, I, I'd be curious to get your perspective on you know what you consider to be the latest cycle or evolution, and and specifically what what I hear a lot talking to people on the on the buy side is is you know the retail investor and you know these these robin hoods that they're they're fundamentally sort of altering the game so my question is is it is it a made is it a fundamental shift or do you think this is just sort of like a a fad i don't know um and uh and i and someone i, I sort of i don't mean just to keep it take a cop-out answer but partly you know we don't we don't opine. I don't opine on sort of these these broad themes because um, I could see it happening, you know, both mm. ways. You know, the retail, the, this whole concept of democratization of, of access to to markets, I think is is ludicrous. Um, it hasn't been that difficult <laughs> in order to uh, for for individuals even going back to you know certainly the '90s to get access to trading stocks and just sort of the hype and, and mania around the internet bubble in the late '90s. I wouldn't necessarily say that people are sort of suffering from from access, and and what you know some of the apps have done recently is they've just obfuscated the costs of of trading. Like <laughs> I can tell you, just based on the bids for the order flow from these these retail brokerages, that you're, you're still losing money. You're just not not seeing it. So there there is this sort of say charlatanesque nature to the whole business model, but it's really no no different. I do think there are some some differences now than maybe in the past. You know, the biggest one just does relates to availability of capital and just how some of the structures, pretty you know, particularly call options, are being positioned um, to individuals. And you know, there's effectively people are saying, you know, I'm going to buy calls. I don't really care if I lose the money, and because it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. So almost you know, like maybe gamified. 
well, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely gamified. I mean, there's, there's just, I don't think that's contentious at all. I, I think that's actually one of the things that's celebrated about the whole business model. <laughs> I mean, you have fucking confetti when you make a trade. Like, okay, like, look, I, I'm not trying to, you know, be overly philosophical about it, but like, there's a reason why, like, you want bankers and doctors to be boring. Like, this is just not an exciting part of the world. You, you want competency and consistency, and you don't want, you know, <laughs> confetti. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I, but I, I don't necessarily think this is a new phenomenon in society. To what extent uh, is does it lead to structural changes in the markets? I don't know. I, I can say that one thing that is definitely new is because of technology. I mean, you've talked about this in the book, but sort of the ability to network now because of tech, which has not existed historically, to enable coordination. I mean, like, <laughs> humans' main um, thing in the animal kingdom is that we can coordinate, right? Um, and so now you can have uh, forums by which you can have mass coordination of, of individuals. Now, everyone that looks at that says, like, yeah, that's that's collusion. Of course that's collusion. Like, that's not just saying it's illegal. But, but realistically, yeah, like, you've got you know, how many thousands or tens of thousands or a million people all doing the same thing, coordinating their activities because of technology, that will have an impact. That's not to say it's going to get outlawed, but I, I, just, I don't think that's even a contentious statement. <laughs> um, and so I do think the professionals like us, like, again, this is not saying this is good or bad or, or right or wrong or anything, but just being cognizant that that can happen. Um, and objectively, if, if I'm a retail investor or the hive mind of retail investors and I see a stock with high short interest and you have an understanding for essentially how the game works, of course they're going to play that game and say, yeah, I'm going to squeeze the hell out of some hedge fund that's not being cognizant of that. It's kind of mm. like, look, if you didn't lock your car in a bad part of the town and someone comes in and, you know, breaks yeah. breaks into it, like whose fault is that? Like obviously yeah, exactly. that, you know, that's just the reality of the game that we're in. So, so I do think, I, I, I guess to summarize, um, because of technology and some of the mechanisms which are more readily accessible, that's certainly different. Um, is that systemically different in terms of impact on the overall market? I'm not sure I'd go that far, um, but just the the general sort of driving force behind you know people uh, wanting to participate and you know getting a thrill out of sort of again not necessarily negative or, or positive this word has sort of a negative connotation, but I mean that way is just sort of the the idea of gambling that that's not new at all. Um, it's yeah. definitely not new. So yeah, if you think about. Um you know some of your your notes today at, at at the firm and decisions they're making. What? How do you coach somebody, Will, from the center who's going through a draw in their own business? Like, how do you help them get out of that? Sure. As I said, I'm a uh, fortunately, unfortunately, a uh, pretty big math nerd historically, uh, and just in general, I just can't even begin to explain how much I encourage people to have baseline understanding of statistics. <laughs> So what I do in those situations is say, okay, why are we here? Why are you here? Is this because you did something really dumb? Um, or is it just that this is a natural evolution of, of the business that we're in? It's like the, you know, the quote from <laughs> Godfather 2, like, this is the business we've chosen. In finance, if you are right 55% of the time on a daily basis, you're printing money over the long period. But that feels like you're wrong half the time. Um, yeah. And there's a sort of a, a psychological toughness that you need to have. And so I, I, I do think for whatever reason, I just, it's being objective, being able to remind people that yes, things happen. Um, you know, let's, 
let's understand why, let's understand whether something's changed, um, and really sort of assessing is, is the process itself broken? You know, our, our business model and the way I think about world is very, very process driven. Like, do you have a bad process or is it just that by statistical randomness, this is, uh, this is not a good period for, for what the, you're doing. That, that's not to say we're, you know, patting people in the back and saying like, oh, it's okay. Like it'll be fine because it sucks. Um, but at the same time, right. Just being objective about it, and again, going back to the notion of like what is real and, and removing sort of some of the human psychological biases. Um, and, and that's more in the sense of people that run fundamental strategies where they have discretion in, in what they're doing. But that's not to say that even for someone running a quantitative strategy, which is very rules-based, that they wouldn't sort of have some of those same psychological pressures because at the end of the day, humans are the ones that are designing quantitative algorithms. But just, again, applying common sense, being objective, you know, looking at sort of statistical distributions and having an appreciation for what can happen um, so you don't freak out and when something inevitably goes wrong because it is. Uh, and because I sit at the, see it, sit at the center and um, because, you know, over a business model, I said we have 100 strategies, you know, something always sucks. So it's like I'm constantly <laughs> in that in that world where it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, like, there, there's always something that's not working and uh, just having a bit of perspective there to uh, to pass down to people that are kind of, you know, when they, when they hit those points, I think. Well, going back to you, just as, as we sort of wrap this up here, we you, you sure. know, we've, t- we've talked about your strengths. I'd love to know, like, you know, what, what are some of those, like, you know, you know, what you see perceived weaknesses for yourself, and how you how do you how you approach those in life? Sure. <laughs> well, you know, I've I've got a bunch, um, and I don't. I, one of the things I don't shy away from it. Sometimes people affectionately call me a cyborg because um, externally <laughs> it might seem that way, um, but I actually very much talk about. You know, here, here are things I'm really sort of working on. Uh, a pretty salient example that's just, it's somewhat funny, but but I very actively mention this to people to sort of humanize myself, is uh, I, I really pass out at the sight of blood um, or the discussion <laughs> of blood. I mean, that's it's actually a medical thing. It's a hyperactive vagal nerve. You know, everyone has this to some extent. You know, they get a little queasy. In my case, it's like really fucking embarrassing. So I've passed out every single time I've ever given blood. You know, there's there was one dinner, a work dinner, where I was actually I hadn't really eaten <laughs> that much, and, and so my blood sugar was a little low. And I was actually telling it was a potential investor, and I was I was telling them about this. I was like, oh my god, by explaining that I have this issue, I've actually caused this issue to manifest itself. So I actually passed out at dinner, hit my head on the floor, and the, the ambulance came. And people were like, what the hell is wrong with you? And so the next day I walked to the office and people were like, are you okay? Like, what the hell? And, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know, it happens. Uh, and then <laughs> the, the last one, again, this, it, it's just funny. But, it it, funny. but again, it's like, so I was sitting on a plane once pre-COVID. I, I traveled a lot. And uh, it was like one of those flights where I was rushing, you know, got flight got moved, whatever, just got a middle seat. It sucked whatever. Um, I hate sitting in the middle seats. I'm not, I'm not a small dude. And I was like, this just sucks. I'm going to watch some mindless movie to get through the next, you know, two and a half hours. And then I'm going to be home and, and see my <laughs> wife. And, uh, so I turn on this movie and it was, is John wick two, which I didn't know anything about. I was like, okay, action movie, whatever. 
But my God, like within 30 <laughs> seconds, they're like stabbing each you know, people in the neck and there's just blood <laughs> everywhere. And I was like, holy shit, I'm going to pass out and I'm in the middle seat and the plane's about to take off. This is a serious problem. And uh, I did actually, and it was a bit of a problem. Um, but yeah, I, I tell people about it because again, A, it's kind of funny. But also, it's just just important. Like humility is a strength, and you know, like making fun of yourself is a strength. Particularly if, in some other areas, it might seem like slightly ab- abnormal. Like I get up at four thirty every day, and you know, do the same thing every day. And like I said, that's just not normal. Being actually like, yeah, well, at the same time, like you can look at John Wick and not pass out, and I can't. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. uh, that's a good one. It's really good. It's really, I love that story. If you were going to leave sort of the listeners today of like some, something that's, that you've sort of been focused on recently, is there something like leadership wise that's really, you found impactful? What would that be? Like, wh- where would you sort of point someone to if they're looking for their own personal professional development? Yeah. So one of the things I've been thinking about recently, I did, this sounds, I'll, I'll put it in context. So, so generally speaking, like my priorities are in fo- no particular order, but in four main areas, there's sort of myself from an intellectual and physical sense my family, my business, and the world. And the percentages of the time that I spend on all those those differ, and there's some obvious cases in each one. The last category, just the world at large, frankly, is something I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about until recently. Um, like our, our system in and of itself, policy in and of itself, and have been spending more time just thinking about that. Um, you know, I do at least have a pretty decent understanding of history. I was very, it's, it's not a chore to, to go and read, you know, history books or first principle sources and, and have done that for years. And, and, and that is something that I'm, you know, encouraging within myself, um, encouraging with the sort of other people that are, you know, successful um, in achieving whatever it is they want to do, have a, a sort of, achieve some level of, of influence and responsibility, um, especially at a, at a younger age, to actually just think about ways to get involved in a more impactful way in policy, <laughs> not in, in sort of a superficial, I'm going to do some microscopic th- charity to make myself feel good. Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that, but actually thinking realistically about policy, because I do think more people like me need to think about that and figure out ways to get involved. I don't have an answer to that. Um, but that is one area that I'm certainly thinking about and uh, and I encourage sort of other other leaders to think about as as well. Is is not just staying in your own bear cave in your own world and figuring out how to sort of optimize your business. But we, there's some pretty serious issues in the world and uh, and actually thinking about ways to ways to get involved more broadly speaking, I, I do think is very important. And again, particularly at those that are have achieved success and are in their, you know, thirties. It's sort of our generation that is going to be left with the the really crazy shit to figure out. So that that is one thing that I would just I would just think about. I've I've been thinking about it, is how to apply some of the the principles that you know I have personally you know have had some success in developing a business context. You know how does that do what or to what extent uh, is that relevant and thinking much in a, in a broader sense and sort of what are what are some effective ways to to think more about policy involvement. Are there, are there like, where are you, what is your sources of content for this? Like, is there specific books or like blogs? News so outlets? yeah, I, uh, first of all, I don't do social media at all. Um, and when I say that, like I, I, I haven't used Facebook and Twitter in 10 years, um, but really. And so it's, it's uh, the ways that I consume material are, um, well, I, I go for a walk for 45 minutes every single morning before I work out and I listen to audiobooks on 3x speed. So if you do that consistently every day, you can read a lot of material. Um, and so that's, uh, 
it's a combination of what I th- is just interesting to me um, from you know audio books, um, typically biographies or descriptions of a certain area of history. You know, first principle sources like you know go back and read Milton Friedman's original stuff from the 60s. It's super interesting, as well as podcasts. Um, I, <laughs> this is kind of why I did this. I, I do listen to a lot of podcasts, very fairly eclectic. I like the interviews. You know, I like interviews with people, um, just having them actually in long format, actually talking about um, themselves a little bit and their world. And, and that's sort of super interesting to me. It's not sort of consuming someone's Twitter feed or, or anything like that. It's, it's, it's just, I don't personally find that sort of very effective. So, you know, I just encourage people just just start and then meander and you know read five books at a time and if you're or listen to a bunch of podcasts at a time and just just do what's interesting like what what's interesting to you and not what anyone says but but do consume because there's a lot of there there's a lot of information you need to actually have your own um triage process for what's actually going to be informative and, and helpful and also reading outside of the scope of whatever it is that you that you do. Like, I don't just go around and read about business people or finance people or, or sports people, I read about sort of all sorts of different things and I look for sort of connections across, across them. And there are, I think some kind of universal, personal truths. And the closer you can get to first principles, by the way, the, the better, like actually reading the, the principle sources. Um, as I said, like if you care about called libertarian economics, like go and read Bill and Friedman. Don't, don't read some textbook that was written in the nineties the or, or even last year, um, actually go and read the first sources it's, and listen to people talking in their own voice. Again, the first sources I think is, is helpful. Interesting. So good. Well, thanks so much for your time today. It's been, I'm super appreciative and I know, I know the audiences. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks guys. One more thing before we finish the episode. The Crosslead Podcast is produced by the team at Truthwork Media. I want to make this the best leadership podcast available, so I would love to get your feedback. Our goal this season is to have authentic conversations with special operators, business leaders, and thought leaders on the topics of leadership and agility. If you have any feedback, suggested topics, or leaders that you want to hear from, please email me at contact at crosslead.com. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with a friend and drop us a rating. Until next time, thank you for joining.